Welcome back to another episode of the Lead with Data podcast with myself, Rena Gami. In addition to being a podcast host, I also lead a business intelligence and data analytics recruitment practice. This is the podcast where I bring you some of the most talented data leaders who have contributed in significant uplift of BI and data analytics capabilities in some of the most progressive organizations across Australia. I want to share the stories of their careers, challenges they faced, and the reality of how the recent pandemic may or may not have impacted their roles and responsibilities in their current organizations. Here's where we get to learn what some of the professionals in this field are doing right now. Welcome back to another episode of Lead With Data. This is our first episode of season two. I'm really excited. Um, I had a really positive response to season one. Um, it's taken me a little while to get this season out there, um, but I'm glad that um, I finally got there. Um, on the show today, I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Sarah Dodds. Um, Dr. Sarah Dodds is a PhD qualified physicist, electrical engineer, with 20 plus years of STEM focused um, roles in her career. She's worked for some really interesting organizations and been involved with um, a number of um, industrial R&D um, and also um, worked uh, across consulting and uh, leadership roles with organizations like Telstra Health, Australia Post and AGL. Um, Sarah's really um, passionate about um, realizing economic and social outcomes from technological advances and using them to bridge the gap between invention, market opportunities, and also implementable solutions that can help organizations create value. Um, she's a, a fan of long life learning, a driver of diversity, um, and she's, yeah, she was a great, um, her, you know, great uh, guest on the show. So I can't wait to get this out to you guys. Welcome on the show, Sarah. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. It's lovely to be here, Rena. Thank you. Um, look, I always um, think it's great for the guests to introduce themselves. So I'll get you to um, give us a bit of a background in terms of yourself. I know you've had a really interesting career, so um, I, I probably won't do it justice. So I'll get you to give us a bit of a background um, of yourself, uh, what you've done, and I guess where you're at now. Sure. Thanks, Rena. Look, when I look at the career I've had, there have been two driving forces that have sat behind it. Um, one of them is a real drive to make a difference. And I know a lot of us sort of want to see our work make a difference um, in the world that we live in. And for me, that's looked like what's the divide between generating new knowledge and how is it actually applied to make a difference in society? So I've come out of a deep tech background. Um, I've got a degree in physics, PhD in communications engineering. I've invented some technology. I've seen the knowledge generation and new things appearing and I've seen the massive gap between this inventive bit and what does it actually take to have a thing that's out there in the world that you can point to that's actually helping to improve lives. Um, so that has fascinated me for a lot of my career. And I guess the flip side of that and, and the other is a fascination with the new. Um, I am a child of the digital revolution that we're living through and as a, a permanent student of how the world is changing. Um, if you look back to 1950, to 1970, to 1990, to 2010, and to where we are now, the amount of change that we have in our society is just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and it's all driven by data, by electronics, by IT coming to be a more and more central place in the world that we live in, and we're figuring out how to use it for advantage. And that, so that's the other piece for me about 
there's new stuff coming. We're living through a revolution, which I think is awesome in its own right. Yeah. And then how do we actually make it make a difference? Yeah. So the the basically the the path that's followed was starting out in research because I love the new stuff and, yeah. and working out from there, hang on, I want to get involved in company formation. So span out a company, have worked in in actually bringing that to life. I've led research teams in, in industrial applied research and most recently gone to the corporate world about how do we bring new products to market and now it's how do we get data science to actually make a difference. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. And look, I can tell just even just from the way you speak that you're so passionate about this. And I was going to ask you, why are you so passionate? What, what are you most passionate about when it comes to data? Um, I think my passion there is about the ability to change things for the better. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a family with a really strong ethic about leave the world a better place than the one that you found. And I think data has enormous potential to do that. And is unrealised potential at the moment. And, and that means we've got so many opportunities to get it right. We're going to get it wrong and we need to manage the risk around it's not an if, it's a when we get it wrong. How do we learn the lessons? How do we contain the fallout from that um, to, to minimise the damage that it does? And then how do we do better as we go forward? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and obviously, you've had um, you know a, a great sort of career and, and held a number of different roles and done a, a number of different things. If you were to tell me about a couple of the career highlights or projects that have probably shaped, played a big part in shaping who you are now, what would they be? The biggest shaping role I actually had was as a researcher with what was then NICTA, National ICT Australia. And we'd invented some new technology for monitoring what goes on inside what's now the National Broadband Network and didn't exist then. Um, and basically there's, there's lasers send pulses of light down optical fibres and they're, they're the ones and the zeros that actually make the whole internet work. And we'd invented some technology to help understand what was going wrong with those laser pulses. Um, and we, we eventually spun out a company called Monitoring Division and I came from being a university researcher to being the chief operating officer of that company as it spun out. And that was just such an extraordinary extraordinary learning opportunity. Um, I, I just remember one of the really formative questions asked by a, a guy called Ralph Petrov, who was an entrepreneur in residence um, at NICTA when we were looking at it, was just, why would somebody pay money for what you do? Yeah. And I didn't understand the question. Coming from a research perspective, it was yeah. all about the patent. Because yeah. patents are worth money, whereas papers are free. So yeah. I haven't given the information away. I've actually protected it. So therefore, it's worth money. Yeah. He just looked at me. <laughs> yeah. Why would somebody pay money for it? Yeah. And that, for me, was a really formative moment around the work we do has to generate value. Mm-hmm. Whether that value is new revenue, whether that value is about a productivity savings, or whether that value is around risk mitigation and not getting sued. Yeah. They're really the three reasons why people buy things. Yeah. Um, and you need to be able to plug your work into one of those and align it to at least a value creation conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so I suppose if we just sort of take it back a little bit, obviously data and data science has become the new um, industry. I say this in, in speech marks. It, it absolutely is becoming an industry now. Um, it, it did exist and we know it's existed for years. It was called a number of different things in the past. Um, and often probably was a part of somebody's role or a function. Where do you think the data industry stands at the moment? Um, 
We've had new industries appear before, and I, I guess I'm, I'm fascinated by what that journey looks like as a new industry comes to life. Um, so if I was to tell you about an emerging industry um, where demand is outstripping supply, um, teams include people who've come in from a wide variety of backgrounds that are not actually related to um, the particular industry that's coming, but you've got chemists, you've got actuaries, you've got people with very different but STEM backgrounds. Yeah. You've got problems with leaders that don't actually understand what it is that you're doing or what the potential is, and there is a, a huge um, education part of what you're doing. And teams are regularly undertaking projects that have never been done before. Yeah. If I was to ask you what industry that was, I reckon most of you are thinking at the moment that's data science. Yeah. I'm actually describing IT in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, and I was lucky enough that it was very, very early in my career, but I did get to see some of that as it was happening. And it was the same the same set of problems but in a different space. Um, so I think there's a lot that we could learn for that. Um, I was actually at uni in the late 80s, early 90s, and what was fascinating then was that IT courses were pretty much gender balanced. Yeah. Now they're not. Something mm-hmm. happened. And what could have been a truly joyous, diverse culture became something that had quite a strong bias about around it that we're still trying to untangle 40 years later. So I think we've got a real opportunity in data science as this industry is forming. We have such a wonderful diversity of women, of demographic backgrounds um, in the industry, of, of different, I guess, cognitive diversity is what I call it. People have got different training. They've grown up with different life experiences that actually makes really rich, really powerful teams. And the one thing I'd love to see coming out of data science was that being seen as core to a successful data science team is that you need to have that diversity. Yeah. When you're doing things that have never been done before, the more different perspectives you can have at the table, I think the better the outcomes and that the higher chance of success you're going to have. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that changed? What do you think may have led to the change of balance in gender? Because I know what I did, because um, I actually started off in doing a computer science degree and then moved to business information systems. And when I was doing computer science, and this is in the sort of early, sort of early late 90s, um, the there was two two of us that were doing computer science only in with, yeah. you know, amongst these. Um, I've, I've been trying to work this out for years and I heard something recently that actually sort of makes sense in this space. And the thing that seems to have changed it was the personal computer came out and it was marketed to adolescent males. Okay. Um, so before that, we were talking about minis, we were talking about mainframes. They were big um, big machines that had teams of people working on them. Yeah. But suddenly the PC came out and that was something you could have in your home and the market that it was actually focused on had far more reaching um, impact than I think anybody expected as, as that happened. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's going to be an equivalent of that in the data science space, but I'm, I'm hoping that we can fight tooth and nail to keep it as a space where diversity has a really strong role to play. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, And, look, in terms of um, obviously data science, because, I mean, look, I, from my perspective, from a recruitment point of view, I certainly see that there's been a number of, um, I mean, look, I, I meet a number of individuals both male and female. So I see that there definitely is, um, you know, more interested women getting involved in data science these days. Um, Why do you think 
I suppose males have gravitas more to data science when it's more of an analytical, non-technical kind of role as opposed to the females. Part, well, so part of that is just women moving out of STEM in Australia. Mm-hmm. There are other countries where it is much more at a gender parity kind of yes. level. Um, but in fundamental sciences in Australia, and women have moved out of the space, which I think is a, is a tragic crying shame mm-hmm. because it is a space where we could and should and know we can excel. Yes. The interest isn't there and the, the switch off is actually happening quite early in primary school. Yeah. The girls don't identify with a STEM career. They don't identify with computer science. And there's still a lot of one of the, the major pathways at the moment into data science is from computer is from computer science. Yeah. So that's the training because there weren't courses around data science as its own discipline up until now. I think they're coming. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited to see that that's happening and I think the broader ecosystem is going to start getting more attention that you can train as an MLOps engineer, you could train as an analytics translator, you could train as a data science um, discovery expert. Mm -hmm. Um, They're they're actually quite different roles. But Mm -hmm. up until now, where that workforce has been drawn from is already a largely male pool in the IT. Yeah, Yeah. or mathematics, which I think, again, um, probably, um, you know, has... But statistics, interestingly, yeah. has been historically had more women involved in it. Yeah. And, again, I'm not quite sure what changed um, or if it has yeah. changed. But this yeah. is this is such a good career for anybody who's got a numerical brain to to be moving into. And there's a space for a lot of different skill sets. Yeah. I, 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 I say it a lot, but there is that rocket science involved. But in some ways the rocket science is actually the easy stuff. Yeah. What is it that you need to go around it? How do you work with a cross-functional team? How do you work with the person whose job's going to change and trying to figure out how do you actually get a pathway to integration? Yeah. Um, there's all the technical things about how it's going to work. There's the data plumbing that's got to be done in the background about how are we actually going to build this up so that yeah. it's sustainable. Yeah. Um, there, there's a wide variety of roles that needs a wide variety of skills. Yeah. Um, and I, I go back to Sarah Moran and the the – um, girl geeks and the the hustlers, hackers, and what's the third one? Hackers, hustlers, and I can't remember the third one. No, that's all right. But but again, they they've looked at how to, even at, at the work they're doing with primary school girls, mm-hmm. they've got um, three quite different functions. Yeah. yeah. Um, and noting the diversity that you need to bring together a holistic team that's going to be able to get to the other side of things. You don't want three people the same in a team. No. Yeah. No, absolutely. And we're getting that a lot at the moment, you know, companies and teams and leaders want a really mixed, diverse um, team. And and I think you touched on it earlier and diversity doesn't just mean gender balance. It also means backgrounds, you know, and different demographics and people coming from different parts of the world, different upbringings. All of those things bring different perspectives, different ideas and things like that. So uh, organisations are also pushing to try and create more of a diverse team of individuals, especially in the data science space, given, um, you know, the thought process and, you know, the um, the analytics that are, that are required. So, um, yeah, no, I think it's really interesting. And it's definitely a really, really interesting space um, it, from a recruitment point of view, because we're finding a lot of people want to get into it, but just don't quite know how. So, yeah, it's hipsters. Yeah. <laughs> hackers and hipsters are the three. Oh, there you go. You remembered it now. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad I remembered <laughs> Oh, brilliant. Um, so often data is confused with technology. Like I think a lot of people say it, it's a technology, right? When 
it, it really isn't no um and my understanding of it is that it should be you it or it is used as an enabler to help you do better things with data what is your views i mean i could be completely wrong but what are your views and where, where do you see technology play so, um, I, I like analogies and yes. the analogy i've got for this one is a kitchen yeah so it is the stove the oven the saucepans the implements that you use to do the mixing you cannot cook without them Mm-hmm. Data is the ingredients. Okay. So you need to have ingredients, you need to have a recipe, and you need to have a chef to bring those things together. And they they need so we need IT to do what we do. Um, but it's more if you go back to the disciplines that sit behind it, information technology is very much actually about the programs, it's about the hardware, it's about the storage, it's mm-hmm. about the architecture. Um, the information systems. And information management is, I think, where data engineering and data data science actually sits. And historically at universities, that's actually come out of the business school. Mm-hmm. So it, it actually sat somewhere entirely different in the university, which is weird that when you go to industry, the, the two of them have just got smushed together. Yeah, completely. I kind of do stuff with information and therefore you're going to sit together and, you know, we can possibly, and they, they think they're the same discipline, but the thought processes behind it. Um, one is much more of an enabler and the other is much more of a producer. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Thanks for that. Um, and what are your views on data science and analytics in companies? Everyone seems to have a different version, a different understanding, and obviously their own sets of challenges around either introducing this or getting the full utilisation of this. What are your views on um, what data science is and where it sits and how it should sit in a company? Yeah. Uh, look, it's a great question. Um, data science is quite immature, and I've been lucky enough to work in a number of organisations where I've seen it done quite differently. Um, you can have, have almost an organic approach where we need a data scientist and there's one data science poor person, whoever they yeah. are, who's, who's sitting in the business being a little unicorn, um, and they're quite, they're quite close to the business, which is great. So they know what the problems are. They understand the workflows. They know what it is they're trying to achieve. Um, but they're quite isolated from their profession. They're quite isolated from anything in the way of career development and yeah. career support. Um, they're also usually completely in charge of both developing the models and operating them. So they're actually having to deal with data governance. They're having to deal with type pipeline monitoring. They're having to deal with performance monitoring because we do have this really interesting and unique challenge in data science that models can fail silently. And there are no exterior signs that what used to be quite useful is now, that the model is now turning out unuseful and unhelpful and inaccurate results because it's still it's still actually working. Yeah. Um, so that's that's was where a lot of companies got started. I think it's really hard on the person involved because it's hard to see a way up other than leaving the company. And the problem is they've only ever written code for themselves. Yeah. So when they leave, the the key person risk and the IP that walks out the door with them um, is incredibly difficult um, for the company to recover from. And, and I've been there trying to manage some of the code where the data scientist who wrote it is, is no longer with the organisation. And it's they're smart people very smart people, um, and sometimes what they do is quite impenetrable, um, which also comes from the fact that they're not necessarily trained in writing well-documented code. Code, yeah. 
because they've like me, um, they've come through the engineering or the science side of things where um, programming is a tool that you use to achieve an end. Mm-hmm. Um, if you come through computer science and you learn to program, you get smashed with you need to document your code, you need to write yeah. it in a particular way, it needs to be modelled, it needs to be well-structured and modular. Um, for those of us who's come through the science and engineering side of things, which I think is where a bunch of data scientists have come from, because it was a tool, we might have encountered some of that on the way through, but it's kind of like a doctor's notes. We sort of did it for our own reference so that we yeah. can change it, and it's not industrialised. Yeah. So so that's one model. Um, so you can think of those as what can be called desktop data scientists or data science unicorns. Yeah. Um, at the other end, so they've got no processes, they've got no standards to work through, they're entirely working to their own accountability. Yeah. At the other end of things, what I've then seen companies do is form a centre of excellence. So they've gone looking at these poor, these people out in the business and they're often lovely people and they're doing quite well, but you can see some of the things that, that aren't working become more and more problematic after a yeah. while. So great, let's form a centre of excellence and we'll centralise them all. Um, the problem there is you then start moving into an us and them mentality mm-hmm. because the data scientists are no longer part of the business. They're not as well known. They're not as well trusted. Um, the business doesn't see them as peers. It might see them as a centralised function or worse, you've got the problem of you stole our people um, and, and <laughs> we don't have access to them anymore. But it, there becomes a bigger problem around alignment and understanding. Yeah. So you can do support much more easily. You can put agreed ways of working and industrialization around what you do more easily. So for the organisation, there are benefits around being able to scale it out, being able to put some quality control processes in place. Um, and for the people involved, they've now got peers. There's actually not a much more straightforward career path that you can go from a, a junior to a senior to a, a manager if, or a principal, depending on which way you want your path to go. Yeah. Um, but finding the right questions becomes a whole lot harder. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's some lovely papers about this, by the way, out in industry. It's, it's a problem that um, industry is currently grappling with yeah. about what is the best, mm-hmm. um, best structure. What seems to be working is some kind of hybrid between the two. So having it, and particularly now that MLOps is becoming a thing, Yes, you want to do your exploration out in the business and, yes, you really need to understand the business and what they're trying to achieve and be able to collaborate really closely with them to do something new and that requires people knowing each other and relationships and trust and a shared sense of alignment. Yeah. Once you've actually got something built and you want to move it to production and you want to have um, monitoring systems in place, you want to make sure that it can't fail silently, it's got to be supportable and you want to scale it up, yeah, you've got to bring it in. That, that's yeah. where it makes absolute sense to have a centralised team that can, can look after all of those models as a support function. And I think that's a really interesting emerging um, career opportunity as well. Yeah. At the moment, MLOps is still quite an advanced entry point because we're all figuring out how to do it and what do you need to do when we're doing things for the first time. Yeah. I think it's going to be a really good future path for people with a, an IT background who want to move more into data science because you still need to understand the algorithms and what's going wrong but there's a lot more standard IT support um, that sits along, principles that sit alongside it. Yeah, 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 excellent. Um, and um, I think we may have um, sort of covered this in, in discussions outside, but there's two sets of personas I think you talked about. So tell us a bit more about that. Thank you. I get to talk about one of my favourite stories. <laughs> 
So there were some really different personalities and some really different techniques that you want to bring to bear when you're doing something that's high risk and unknown and you don't know whether it's actually going to work or not. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like to talk about explorers and builders and think about if you are setting up an expedition, forgive the environmental aspect, to discover and build a new gold mine in the middle of an African jungle. Yeah. The people who you want to go and do the exploration have got machetes, they're going through, it's not piranhas in in Africa, but you're going through quite dangerous territory. Um, you need to cover ravines, you're going to be doing rope bridges, you're going to yeah. be swinging from branches, you're going to be dealing with really high risk. Yeah. You're going to be good at dealing at that risk, having the minimum amount of resources that you need and figuring out at what you need to do to find the gold. Yeah. They are not the people that you want to do the surveying for. This is where the, the bunking quarters are going to go. This is where headquarters is going to go. These are the logistics roads we're going to need in and out. You actually need quite a different builder mentality when you've got to the point of, okay, we found the gold, we know where it is, now we need to build a robust and sustainable way of mining it and of actually bringing it out to market. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've worked with some lovely people who think that the explorers should be getting things ready so that the builders can take over seamlessly for them. Um, but I think they're actually different. When, when you're exploring, you want to be spending as little time and money as possible to figure out what's going to work and what's not. And you need to expect that 70 to 80% of what you're trying to do isn't going to work. So don't waste the resources on it. Yeah. It's really found. And, and if you do try and do everything to a future production standard, you're not going to be able to go fast enough and you're not going to be able to try a sufficient range of things to find the one that's likely to be successful. Yeah. When you found it, breathe deeply. There's going to be some tech debt. That's okay. It's going to be suboptimal. That's okay. Mm-hmm. But that's the point where you want to go, okay, how do I now optimise this code so that I can run it on cloud resources and scale up, scale out when I need to and then scale back down afterwards? How do I do the optimization of, of parameters that around uh, around the model that we're choosing to use? Is it the best model? Can we do something to actually optimise it? What monitoring do I need to put in place? Yeah. You don't care about any of that if there's no gold there. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a really interesting um, and a good healthy tension between what's the right level of being able to segue between the two versus what's a waste of resources. Yeah. And that's really interesting because quite often um, when we're taking a job brief, um, we get told this role overlaps with this or we'll be required to also do this and also do that. So in your, and, and I know this won't be sort of a black and white sort of answer, but from your perspective, what type of roles would sit under the explorers and what kind of roles? I mean, Obviously, from the builder's point of view, you're talking about your engineers, your, your technical people, but what sort of roles from a data point of view would sit under the explorers and which ones would sit under the builders? Sure. Um, so let's let's start with the obvious. Data governance has got to be there, right? If you yeah. don't know what your data is and you can't trust it and you can't govern it and you don't have a single source of truth, um, you don't have a map for Africa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that makes it kind of difficult to know where you are and where you're going. Where so, you're going, yeah. Yeah, so that's really important. Data quality and governance just has to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, then I think on the explorer side, you've got data scientists. Mm-hmm. And also there's a weird role um, that's either called enablement or translation that isn't standardised yet. Yeah. That's that bridge. Data that, enablement, yeah. Yeah, that's the bridge that sits between um, the business and the technical about what actually is the question that we need to answer and how are we going to be able to action it if we can answer the question. So that's the where's the gold. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then alongside of that, change management, I am a massive fan of. Yeah. Um, and that actually comes from looking at um, some experience in the healthcare world. So there's a very large company in America called Kaiser Permanente mm-hmm. that wanted to change from physician-based care to team-based care in the US. And I think it was, the, I can't remember the budget, but the budget was insane and 70% of it was change management. Wow. Yeah. Um, again, the rocket science, we know how to manage. We understand mm-hmm. the risk. We know what we need to do. The people side of it, the politics, the why would I change what I'm doing? Yeah. Is this going to change somebody's job? Um, are people going to feel that their employment is actually threatened completely? Yeah. Um, that whole side of things is actually really challenging and I think absolutely key to success. Yeah. Um, I think, unfortunately, a lot of us, have seen data science models that are perfectly good that are sitting in the corner because the business didn't want to use them. Correct. Sort that bit out right up front. Sort out um, your sponsorship. Um, so that that's kind of the team. And then you need a delivery lead. Yeah. Needs a, a project manager. Um, and it's quite interesting that at times the translators think the data scientists do that and the data scientists think the translators do that mm-hmm. and it's actually a third role. Yeah. Somebody's got to wear the pants and make the decisions and listen to both sides of, of what it is that we're trying to do and actually figure out what we're going to do next. Yeah, and make sure it keeps moving as well. And, and make sure it keeps moving and work through broken agile. Yeah. Um, agile is great for experimentation and for sorting this stuff out and it fundamentally doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and that's because you need to change things as you learn and you need to pivot quite often more frequently than two weeks. Um, and data scientists are the world's most gorgeous, optimistic people. Like, I can do that too. And I was yeah. like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> no. we agreed at the start of this, this was going to take you two weeks full time. Now we've had right. it, we need to do something else. And you're saying you're going to finish that and do this. As well, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Agile is great, but you need to be prepared to regard it as the pirate's code. Great set of guidelines. Um, if we need to break it, we'll do, the, do it without hesitation. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And all of that is shaping towards actually defining a product. Mm-hmm. Um, so where the the transition happens from explorer to builder is, is the moment you found gold. Yes. And that is where you've got a product definition. Um, you've established desirability, feasibility, viability. You know what it is you're going to build. You know where it's going in the business and who's going to use it. And now you need to flip across to actually building the thing. Yeah. Um, and that's where your machine learning engineers start coming yeah. into play. That's where the robustness and scalability and supportability starts coming into play and, and you build it. So you're, you're translating and segueing there from explorers to builders with an overlap. And by the time the thing's built and in production, you should be fully sitting with the builders and that's your MLOps team. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Thank you for that. I think that's really good just because it kind of helps sort of understand, um, you know, those two two kind of roles a bit. A, a bit better as well. And everybody will have a, a personal a, a preference based on their personality. Of course. Yeah. Um, some of us just like working with really high levels of uncertainty where you have no idea what's going to work and what's not. Mm-hmm. But people actually really don't like that uncertainty and they just want to be given a clear set of guidelines about here's your goal, this is what you're trying to do, just go do it. Yeah. Yeah. And those people into exploration um, is painful all around. I was just going to say, I think that's where they would be definitely sitting more on the on the builder side, whereas data scientists, um, from my experience, typically will be sitting on the um, explorer side because they're okay with that and they're, they're okay with yeah. perhaps not sort of translating into something tangible if, if the business doesn't deem it, which probably leads me quite well into the, the next thing I sort of wanted to, to discuss was um, 
you know, I always have this conversation when we're hiring these data science roles or working with businesses who want to um, integrate or, or create these new roles. And it is that um, how do data scientists or, you know, professionals sort of demonstrate the contribution that they make um, and getting organisations to see the return on investment? Because quite often you're working on a lot of POCs. You're also, um, you could be working on a prototype, um, you know, that you spent weeks on, which you which you know that it's, it's definitely going to give give that return on investment but how do you navigate those challenges because quite often that's the block that's the stop sort of block when you know data scientists come in and they, they've found a way to solve a business problem but just struggling to get the business or the stakeholders to see the value of that and the cost that it that's going to be required. I'm a big fan of putting up at least a one-page business case and actually getting the business to sign off on it mm-hmm. um and part of at its most fundamental elevator pitch level, it should be this is what it's going to cost, this is what we're trying to do, this is what it's going to cost to build it, this is what we think it's going to cost to run it, and this is the value it's going to return to the business. And that's going to be around not getting sued, um, meeting somebody's KPIs that for other reasons have been regarded as important or improving productivity or new revenue growth. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a fan. I, I have been at places where... It's been a very hard dollar line about tell me exactly how many dollars it's going to be. I'm, I'm comfortable with T-shirt sizing in that space. Um, but if you can align it with KPIs, if you can align it with um, a short-term strategy or about this this is the strategy point that, that this is going to achieve and this is how it's going to do it, I think that's important. I found it's really helpful if you can talk about what the lever is you're going to pull in the business. Um, again, we are quite immature in our um, in in the development of the industry, um, and that means a lot of executives haven't worked in this space and haven't worked with these sort of professionals mm-hmm. before. Um, and they think it's like a project that you just deliver it and it's done. Um, data science isn't like that because we've got far more inherent risks that there simply may not be a pattern in the, in the data, or we may not have enough data at this point in time to do what we want to do. Um, those are good, but you can identify them up front. Um, I think there's a more dangerous one, which is, yeah, we can give you a model, but there's no lever. So we can give you some interesting insights about the business and where it's going, but how is how is that going to drive change? Yeah. And it's that link that I think is really, really important to be able to articulate. Um, and just one example of that is having um, worked to develop a churn model, mm-hmm. right? Here's your churn model and being looked at and going, well, what are we going to do with it? Yeah. You know, it, it's... Well, there's lots of things you could do with it, but having that conversation up front about what does it look like, um, where is it going? We've, we've done some other work with call centres about looking at a customer's propensity to complain, and you can stick that on the um, on the screen in front of an agent so that they know this is a customer that's likely to complain. Wow, yeah. Their KPIs are how many calls can I get through in an hour? Yeah. So they're not measured on the outcome of the call or whether the customer is likely to complain or call back. But that's where the whole change management thing comes into yeah. it. But I think that's the having that discussion about how is really important. And it's one of the reasons I like wireframing right up front. Um, because often what we're doing is to people who aren't educated in the space, they haven't seen it before. And then humans are incredibly visual. Um, so they'll ask you for what they think they want. Um, and the f- most powerful thing you can do is show it to them and go, so would this fix it? Yeah. 
and then talk about, so what are you, what are you going to do with the information? How does this lead to change? Whose job changes? Um, and, how you know, again, how do the KPIs around that line up? Yeah. Um, it's, it's when people aren't educated and don't have a, a strong understanding of the space, they make a lot of assumptions. Going back to our earlier point, mm-hmm. that data science is like IT. Yeah. So we're going to do data science and we're going to do a data science project and at the end of that, we'll have a thing and that will solve all my problems and make, make, make all of the challenges go away. And it's, let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah. Um, if I build you something that looks like this, which is actually a solution, and yeah, it's got an engine inside it, but the engine isn't the solution. If I can do this, and let's assume data science is magic and we can do the bit behind the scenes, how are you going to use that in your business and is that going to help you meet your KPIs? Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and that's, you know, when I talk about the data science sometimes is the easy stuff. Mm-hmm. it's figuring out what's the right question to ask. Yeah, to understand how you're going to solve their problems. And, and then getting sponsorship um, on board from within the business at the appropriate level where they can talk about the outcome, mm-hmm. the how and the why. Yeah. The what is almost irrelevant in yeah. that conversation. It's the why are we doing this and yeah. how is it going to change things? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And we touched a little bit on this before, um, you know, sort of investment and risk management. And I know you're quite, um, you know, sort of passionate about that as well, you know, risk reward and, and value gates and things like that. So t- t- talk us yeah. through a little bit more about that. Sure. So, look, in, in the innovation world, you're quite often starting with we don't know anything. We, we've got an idea and we don't know whether it's a brain fart or we don't know whether it's a really powerful future direction from the business. Yeah. Um, and the the... From that perspective and in that industry, that means you're starting with really high risk because every aspect of risk at at that point in time you've got to assume is high risk. Mm -hmm. And the question is how fast can I start mitigating those risks and how small an amount of money can I spend to do that? Yeah. So a solution doesn't need to be perfect, but it's if I can spend a very small amount of money and then start knocking down that risk profile, um, I can fairly quickly move out of the really high uncertainty state into, okay, we've now got a, a feeling for the general direction and we're moving in that direction and then we can sharpen up that it, and, and the chance of it failing becomes lower quite quickly. Um, and, and the whole fail fast that sits behind innovation is how fast can we figure out whether this has got legs or not. Yeah. Um, and it's quite, com- excuse me, it's quite common to do that based on, um, on value gates. So if you look at the risks that you've got and you start on the one that you think is the biggest, mm-hmm. and for me, I think it's fairly well known that I usually think that the um, the biggest risk is are you building the right thing? Yeah. Do you have a customer and is this thing, you know, is, is somebody going to actually want this at the end of the day? Yeah. And that's not actually data science. That's And data science, I, I would kind of get it, but they're terrified about the fact that they might be committed to building something that they might not be able to build. Yeah. But figuring out whether they can build it is expensive. Mm-hmm. Figuring out whether somebody wants to buy it is actually much cheaper. Yeah. So let's do that bit first. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then if, you, if we get through that, yeah, we think it's got legs, it would solve a problem, people do agree that they'd use it, all right, then let's go and put some more money into it mm-hmm. and then let's let's work our way down the chain. And at, then you start heading into there is a known risk we now need to um, mitigate that, in fact, we might not be able to answer this question with data science. Yeah. Um, and that's where some of the difference in understanding kind of needs to come into it because once you decide to do an IT project, you don't normally get to the middle of it and go, well, actually, you know what, guys, we can't do this. Yeah. 
uh, once you've committed to do it, there's generally a clear pathway. With data science, you've, you've got a different, quite fundamental statistical risk that there may not be a strong enough pattern in the data to build a model that's going to be able to do what we want to do. Yeah. And and that doesn't mean it's the first thing that you should look at. Yeah. But it, it's something that people need to be aware of. Yeah. And I think that's I think that's the crucial part, Sarah, where some organisations and leaders don't quite realise that as data scientists, a lot of the work you do actually tells you that this isn't going to give you or help you with the decision making. And, you know, although money's been spent there, it's money that's been well worth spent understanding. Um, and I think that is the crucial misalignment. From a STEM perspective, it's bleedingly obvious, right? STEM works with the scientific method, which is let's put up a hypothesis and see if we can prove it or disprove it. Yeah. And a positive or negative outcome is both well-regarded and both outcomes. Um, When you're trying to build something and it's a product, what do you mean we can't build it? No, we're going to build it. Um, So it is a difference in thinking and a difference in approach approach that comes through. Yeah. No, definitely, definitely. Well, look, thank you so much, um, Sarah. It's been it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. I mean, look, getting a bit more of an understanding into the data science world for me certainly has been really, really insightful. Um, in terms of, you know, and I always like to ask this question as well to the guests: is where, you know, where do you see where do you see the industry going? I know we've talked about where you feel the industry is at now. From a data science point of view, AI point of view, I know you're extremely passionate about this. Where do you feel that the industry is going, or at least in the next, you know, two or three years? I think there's a few things that are are going to happen in fairly short order. And one of them I'm already seeing, and that's MLOps, Mm -hmm. is becoming mainstream. We're working out that if you're going to build data science models, you need to be able to operate them, and that that is a skill set and an ecosystem in its own right. So I think that we're going to see rising demand for um, machine learning engineers. Mm -hmm. Um, We're already starting to see them. I think that's going to go through the roof Mm -hmm. um, is one side of it. And the other is the AI ethics principles are coming through. And I've been fascinated recently to learn that at the international standards levels, the legal people are all over this. There is a huge international um, effort around bias around societal benefit, around almost the philosophy about what's okay to use AI for. How do we deal with the fact that it is actually supposed to discriminate? We are classifying things and that means that we are discriminating between them, but we need to make sure that we do that in legal and appropriate ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So the ethics side of it, I think, is going to start moving into corporate legal things. So that will actually be quite helpful in terms of data science moving out of IT mm-hmm. uh, because this other side of things about are we doing the right thing, how do we know that we're doing the right thing by our customers, um, how do we make sure we're not doing things that um, are starting to border on shady operations, which nobody yeah. wants to do, mm-hmm. um, and is almost inevitable given that a lot of data science is automating or learning from human process. Correct, yeah. And human process is really, really biased. Yeah, Um, But while it was a human process, you couldn't necessarily measure the bias Mm -hmm. and you couldn't challenge it. When you've got a machine that's making those same decisions in the same way, now it's much less acceptable, which I think is great. But how much is still acceptable? Because there's got to be a pathway to get from where we are to what is is going to be possible. Yeah. 
And I don't think that full bias removal is ever going to be possible because we've got humans designing and operating the systems. But how far down that pathway should we be going to get to a point where, as a society, we're comfortable with what we're doing? Yeah, yeah. And being able to control that because, as you said, when humans are doing it, you might be able to pick and choose depending on how you're feeling that day. But when you've got a machine operating that, it you know, just it just categorizes things the way it's supposed to. So yeah. Um, yeah. It does it does what it's learned. Yeah, it does what it's been and taught to we do. Yeah. Already know we don't want it to emulate some of our less desirable human behavior. So yeah. we've got to figure out how to teach it to avoid those biases and to actually look for biases within itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. while still being able to move forward with the things that it can help us do. Yeah. Yeah. And another one, um another emerging sort of um part of data I'm seeing is data security as well. Um oh, yeah. to be quite a big one as well. Have you sort of had much um so one one of the things I've had the pleasure of working on um was a collaboration between National Australia Bank and Australia Post looking to shut down online identity fraud. Yeah. And I learned so much there about data privacy, about consent, about um what when you're working with um PII. Mm-hmm. That's right, PII, yeah. There are some things that you need to do and there are certainly some very clever ways of treating the data so that you are essentially as a data scientist doing what you need to do blind. Correct. Somebody else is, is holding the keys that you can get back to where you started from later if you need to. If you're looking for trends for marketing, then you may not actually need that information because you're going to apply it more generally based on demographics. Yeah. But if you're looking at actually um, outliers of anomaly detection, then you want to know where that anomaly has come from at times because you actually do need to go back and target them. So doing that while doing all of the work that you do as data scientists blind, because I don't want to know who they are. I don't, don't yeah. know who they are. Yeah. Again, the business action belongs with the right. people and our job is to provide them um, with recommendations as to what they could do with the data. Yeah. Um, so I think there's some really important stuff there. Um, one of the things I got to talk about at the Women in um Women in Tech Festival a couple of weeks back is quantum computing. And that's going to be quite interesting because that's essentially going to make current um, cybersecurity redundant. Or, in fact, it'll be hackable. Yeah. Some of the things that we do now to protect our data rely on the fact that algorithms might take 10,000 years to crack. Yeah. Um, If quantum computing comes to reality, uh, that will not be 10,000 years or anything like it to crack. They It will offer a different approach to problems. Um, And... That's going to get quite interesting because it means a whole new generation of cybersecurity has got to come into play before quantum computing gets to reality. Wow. And there's also guaranteed to be a two-sided arms race on this. Yeah. Every large cloud vendor is looking at this space. Pretty confident there are some dark players on the web that have also got their own shops <laughs> and get there even a week or two weeks before um, the good guys work out that they can do it and they could hack every major system on the planet. I don't really want to think about what that's oh, going to no, no. privacy. So I think we're going to see a lot of space in cyber um, just because of the potential for quantum computing to change everything when it when it gets here and we don't know how long it's going to take to get here. Yeah. It's been going for 40 years um, and it's getting closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. It's, it's a scary world, isn't it, this? Um, I mean, they call it the tech space, but it is the, the innovation. And well, it's, just, it's a changing world, and if you don't keep up with the change, unfortunately, there is risk. 
Yeah. Not just getting left behind, but in terms of what can be done to you if you haven't kept up. Yeah. No, definitely. Definitely. Well, thank you so much. It's uh, honestly, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, uh, you know, if anybody who's listening wanted to reach out, you happy for them to connect with you on LinkedIn and reach out to you if they were keen to sort of pick up on anything that we've talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm assuming you'll put the podcast up on LinkedIn and we can take the conversation there if anybody would like to. Yeah. So thank you very much for having me as part of your podcast. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Sarah.